whenever you're in these New Testament epistles, there's always this tendency as a preacher that you want to set the stage each week by going back to verse 1 of chapter 1. First Peter is, is no different. That it feels like to set the context almost every week, I want to go back to uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 and work all the way through it. But of course, the further we get along in the book, the longer those sermons would get. And so we can't do that every time. So I'm trusting you that you'll keep in mind the foundation of the gospel that has been laid. Peter, like Paul in these New Testament epistles, as they call us, as they start describing our identity, who we are, and they start calling us to who together, who we are in relation to one another, and calling us to a life of holiness and the responsibility that flows out of our life, we have to remember the gospel as the bedrock of it all, that, that indeed Jesus Christ has come and he has saved us. Or as we see in here, that he, according to his abundant mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so as we move on, and there's a call to be holy, and there's a call to put away slander and envy, all of this flows, all of this obedience flows from a transformed heart. It flows from a life of gratitude because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And then what life lived in him and powered by the Holy Spirit looks like. And so we're challenged with how we live and we're challenged with loving one another and being called to that sort of life. But remember all that has grown through the gospel to this point so that now it all flows from it. And Peter does a beautiful job of describing the gospel and describing what that means for us and, and, and then a life that is transformed because of that. So without going all the way back, I do at least want to, to show you how our passage today, verses 4 through 8, connects at least to the previous three verses. It's been a couple weeks now since we had to cancel last week because of icy conditions. It's been a couple weeks since you saw the beginning of chapter 2. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verses 1 through 3, if you remember Pastor Adam's sermon, it, it, this call to to holy living, put away all envy and all malice. And it goes through there, and not a complete catalog of sin, but describing a transformed life and the seriousness and the sobriety with which we should approach living an obedient, transformed life. It was a powerful illustration as he read that email that a pastor gave to a student. It was powerful in my life of this idea of if it comes between struggling with, with your life on the internet and getting an education, you put your life on the internet first. You cut off sin. If that means dropping out of college because of you need access to the internet and you need a computer, then you drop out of college. There was sort of a, a palpable feeling in the room, I think, a couple weeks ago when Pastor Adam says that. You think back to the Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus, he, he gives a, a, an illustration of, you know, if your arm offends you, chop it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. And we know intuitively he's not literally telling us to, you know, hacksaw our arm off or pry that eyeball out. And so, since we know we're not literally supposed to do it, we pull way back then how seriously we should take sin. Okay, I won't go that extreme, but, you know, I'll just try a little harder. 
hearing that sort of that concrete illustration was powerful. So we, we come to that. And so the, God ha, has rescued us. He has transformed our lives. He is, he is saving us. And in the end, in verse 3, he says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So this transformed life comes from tasting that the Lord is good. Peter's assuming here that if you have been born again to a living hope, you have tasted that the Lord is good. There isn't someone who's been born again, but also doesn't have any experience with the goodness of God. He's saying, no, you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so he uses that example in verse 2. As a newborn babe desires that nourishment from its mother, it, it wants it, it, it needs it, 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 it is drawn to it so are we if we've tasted that the lord is good we are drawn to that spiritual milk to that spiritual nourishment that will grow us up into our salvation that we will become like who god has declared us to be righteous and set apart that we will grow up into that salvation and so as the babe desires that milk, so we desire that spiritual nourishment. And as you've tasted that the Lord is good, your appetite grows and that nourishment grows. So then we come to this sort of abrupt analogy all of a sudden of stones in a house. And how does that fit together? It fits as we see verse 4. As you come to him. As you come to him. As people transformed by Christ, as saved by his grace, growing in our appetite, we've tasted that he is good. So where do we turn now for more nourishment? Where do we turn for more satisfaction? To Christ. We keep coming to him. We come to him. We come to him. We don't turn other places. We turn to Christ. And as we come to him, in that, we're going to see here, Peter will explain, we'll see more clearly the identity of Christ, more clearly our identity in him, in union with Christ, more clearly our identity in relationship to one another as people together hidden in Christ, and then the responsibility that flows from that identity. And so we come now to verse 4. As you come to him, Desiring that spiritual meal, tasting that God is good, hungering, thirsting. We come back to Christ. And Christ is described then, come to him, a living stone. This analogy of, of stones and a building, a temple, a house being built up is now going to dominate this passage. And so we come to him, a living stone. The, the example of Jesus Christ as a stone has been implanted through scripture for a long time. We see it as early back, as you remember, in the journey through the wilderness, the stone that, that Moses speaks to or strikes one time and the water flows from it, that life-giving stone and rock. And Paul in Corinthians, as he looks back on it, talks about that rock that followed them through the wilderness, and that rock was Christ. That stone is Jesus Christ, life-giving. Peter, even in this text, he'll pick three Old Testament passages out of many he could quote. Psalm 118, a couple from Isaiah, that he will quote of Jesus Christ being the stone. Christ himself in all of the Gospels, well, at least all the synoptic Gospels, refers to himself as the stone or the cornerstone. Peter's already proclaimed it as in, in Acts. He's already referred to Jesus that way before. So you see this, this analogy of, of Christ as the stone, as this rock, as this, 
this foundational piece. And here Peter is going to combine it with Jesus Christ the stone. He's going to combine it and call him the living stone. So not only that sort of unchangeable solid rock, but also living and interactive and energetic to put an anthropomorphized way of talking about God, put it in, in human terms so we can understand it somewhat. That he is a living stone all the way back to, to verse 3. Connecting us to the idea of Jesus' resurrection. That all of what we've been talking about in Peter is built on this, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. According to his abundant mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's all built on the resurrection. Everything that follows, our hope is built on it. An imperishable, indestructible inheritance is built on that. The idea that we walk through trials and suffering and we have hope and they work for our good, it's all built on the resurrection. Our hope is living because Jesus is living. And so we come to him a living stone. It goes on to describe our Savior Father further. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Peter earlier in Acts chapter 4 just shortly after the gospel events culminating in the ascension of Jesus Christ. And then you have Pentecost and this movement of the Spirit and trying to figure out what is taking place here in the earliest days of the New Testament church. And Peter boldly, as he were to look at the leadership in the, in the city that is raising up against him, he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Acts 4, 11 through 12. And so we understand what is being said here, rejected by men, but has become for us the cornerstone. That Jesus Christ, as he has come, he was rejected. He was rejected by his own. His own did not receive him. Acts lays it at the feet of, of the Jewish people. He lays it at the feet of Judas Iscariot. He, he lays it at the feet of Pilate. All of these men who, who Christ came to save, as he marches in, they celebrate him in his triumphal entry at the beginning of that Passion Week. Their hearts turn against him and they reject him. They reject the one who came. So he is one rejected of men, and yet, as it says, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That he was appointed, we've seen earlier in Peter, that he was appointed before the foundation of the world as the lamb without blemish and spot who would come and be the perfect and precious sacrifice. Through his resurrection, he is exalted. He is the chosen one of the Father to carry out the plan of the Trinity. And I think what Peter is doing here is if you move on to beginning of verse 5, it says, you yourselves like living stones, now addressing us as believers. He's connecting the life of Jesus to our life. That Jesus, that our experience is going to mirror, in some sense, the experience of Jesus. He is a living stone. We are a living stone. He is chosen of God, yet rejected of men. It sounds like elect and exile. Christ is the elect exile. 
He is the pattern for us. Now, make no mistake, when I say chosen of God, not in the sense of that he needed redeemed, but he was the chosen one of God, sent, precious in his sight, and yet rejected of men. He had no home here. You as elect exiles are called to that same life. You are chosen of God. You are precious in his sight. He is refining you into something even more precious. And you are chosen, yet you will experience the rejection of man. You will find that this is not your home. That should give us such courage and hope in the midst of our sojourn here on earth. It gives us comfort and it gives us an example. You should not be surprised by various trials. And you should not begin to try to build your kingdom, own little kingdom here. But come to acknowledge that in some sense you will be rejected by man because you do not belong to this age. You belong to another age. That your values, that your ethic, that your treasure is shaped by something different than culture around us. Christ is that first, the preeminent, elect exile. Chosen of God, rejected of man, and that will be our testimony as we follow him. He goes on a little further and calls him then that he is the cornerstone. As you get into the quotes in verses 6 and 7 and 8, that, that Jesus Christ, rejected of man, has become the cornerstone If you live in Pittsburgh and you are in an old house or buying an old house, you know that there is no house in all of Pittsburgh that has any square wall, any square corner, any level wall at all. So when you go to do a project and you're trying to figure out where do I pull my tape from, well, nothing's, no walls run even, no cut can be nice and straight. It's just after a hundred years. <clears throat> Of these houses sitting, things have grown, expanded, and, and, and nothing is square and level anymore. And it can be a little bit frustrating, especially when you do work for someone and they expect it to look perfectly square and level at the end. Um, I see a lot of people nodding. You know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> the, the cornerstone here is, is for the foundation, not a foundation, but that piece that's laid. So you, you would think the illustration for them, they come... And they're getting ready to build this building. And they're looking for a stone that is massive, that is going to be solid and firm and true. And then that they can take that stone and from it create a perfectly right angle. Something that shoots down this wall, something that shoots down this wall. You have a perfectly right angle. It's sitting nice and level. And from this cornerstone then, you can plan out and build the rest of the building because that cornerstone is true. It sits there as you need it. And so the stone has been rejected of men. Now Jesus Christ is this chief cornerstone. It sits here and it's the perfect and it's the true and it's right. All the rest of the building is going to be built upon it. I think there's an interesting distinction here that it's not wrong to say that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. But when it speaks of that, it speaks that the foundation is found in Christ. If you go to Paul and other places, multiple places, the foundation is the prophets and the apostles who proclaim the word of God. It is the word of God proclaimed by the prophets, 
by the prophets and the apostles that serve as the foundation. The chief cornerstone is Christ. And I think that is, is important because Christ then becomes part of the church. In his humanity, he becomes the preeminent, the first one, the firstborn, the exalted one. But he is the head. He is the chief, but he is part of the building. He is that cornerstone. And we see it in his incarnation that he sets the example. He wins the way that we could not win. He earns the reward we could not earn, and yet it's given to us. And so Christ is the cornerstone. The rest of us are fitted together on him. And he becomes a chief cornerstone. And so we have this, this picture then of Christ as the cornerstone. And it will start then to build on us how we then fit together on that cornerstone so really the rest of our time today, which this text drives home, is this. And that is that the cornerstone cannot be ignored. The cornerstone cannot be ignored. That is to say that he demands a response. And your response, how you deal with the cornerstone, determines your eternal destiny. And he paints two pictures. He paints for us the ones who come to, who hunger for, who thirst, who come to and are built upon that chief cornerstone. That would be his church. And then he paints a picture for those who reject that cornerstone. They may want just to ignore it, but they can't ignore it. They have to deal with it. But we're going to take those two in, in sort of out of order this morning. I want to look at, at first at those who reject that chief cornerstone. Whatever time I have left, I'll give to, to those who come to the cornerstone and how we are built together. But if we don't get real far on it, the, the rest of the text beyond where I am develops that further. So Pastor Adam can develop that further for us. But Peter is extremely plain here. You make a decision about Christ and it has ultimate and eternal consequences. One author says it, one commentator says, says it this way. Christ is laid across cross the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the, in the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. Again, Christ is the cornerstone. One cannot step over Jesus and go on about his daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone, or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin. In verse 7, verses 6 and 7, really, Peter quotes from Psalm 118, and he quotes from Isaiah 8. I'll just read those for you. It says, Open to me, Psalm 118, 19 through 23. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Thank I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in his eyes. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. 
A rock of stumbling, a stone of offense. So I guess first, who are the builders that are rejecting the stone? The builders are just each of us. It's humanity. It's those who are attempting to build a life ignoring that cornerstone. So they come, let's say, in the example, the builders would come. Often they would go through several stones before they settle on the chief cornerstone. So they get this one, and it's not quite to their liking. They don't get it how they want it, so they reject it and move on. It's that idea of folks coming, seeing Christ and what he is calling them to, rejecting it and deciding they're going to build their lives, they're going to build their ethic, they're going to build humanity on some other foundation, on some other stone. And so they reject it and try to build it, just ignoring, ignoring Christ. And he's saying here, you can't do that. You can't just ignore it because it becomes a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to you. So that is who the builders are. Turn to Matthew, if you would. Matthew 21. I'm just going to reference it, but I think it helps drive home this point. We'll take a moment in Matthew 21. Christ in Matthew 21 gives the parable of the tenants. And he references the same quotations from um, Isaiah and from Psalm. He combines these two quotations, Christ does, into one. But listen to to how he explains what's taking place here. Verse 33 of Matthew 21. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So we have our picture here. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his own son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus asked, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? You understand the illustration, right? God has sent prophets. He has sent his message into the world. That he is coming to redeem. He is coming to make new, to make whole. That he is going to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. And so he sends them, the prophets in, and the prophets are rejected. The message is rejected. Some of them are beaten, and they are killed, and they are driven out. So then who is the son that is sent? Well, the son of God is sent. Surely they will listen to him as he comes to offer peace, offer hope, offer a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he is driven out and he is killed. So God asks, what what do you think will happen? Listen how they answer. They said, verse 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Now listen Jesus responds, and Jesus says to them, Have you never read in Scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will not be taken away from you and given to a people. The kingdom of God, sorry, will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on 
anyone, it will crush him. The stone that the builder rejected, you don't just like ignore it and go on with your life. You'll be dashed upon it or it will crush you. Either this stone, this cornerstone, serves for you to build your life upon, or it serves as your destruction and your judgment. Calvin, as he comments on this passage in 1 Peter, says, There is no medium between the two things. We must either build on him or be dashed against him. So now we come to verse 8, what you really all were just waiting to hear probably. Verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So first piece we'll take, they stumble because they disobey the word. So does it mean that it's based upon their works, their obedience, that they stumble or not? Do you remember a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 1, verse 22? It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, and then it goes on. And we looked at what does it mean to be purified by obedience to the truth? Obedience to the truth, the truth there is gospel, the obedience that is clearly laid out for us coming up to that point is our response to the gospel. It needs to be faith, the gift of faith and repentance and hope. To be obedient to the truth is to have faith and hope in the gospel. Those who do not have faith and hope in the gospel get one consequence. Those who do, they have their souls purified. And so that's what we talked about, obedience to the truth. The same understanding is here in verse 8. They disobey the word. That is, they are not hoping. They are not resting. They do not have faith in the gospel. So that is the disobeying. They stumble because they are hearing the gospel and they are not believing it. They are rejecting it. And now we come to Peter just drops this little bomb on us and walks away with no explanation. But he says, as they were destined to do. So how does this exactly relate to the passage? First, we've already established squarely of God's election and God's saving grace. That he has caused us, first we're called elect exiles. He has caused us to be born again to the living hope. As Jesus is chosen and precious. So we are chosen and precious in his sight. So we see God's electing Love, and that that is who we are termed as Christians, as elect exiles. This serves then as the counterpoint to that electing love. So how do we understand it? <clears throat> I think that the exegesis on it, if, if you were to, to write it out in just natural, normal rules of grammar, the sentence would read something like this. They stumble, comma, disobeying the word, comma, unto which they were appointed. They stumble, disobeying the word, unto which they were appointed. And now there's two schools of thought here. The first is, well, first, from the construction, we're, we're comfortable that saying they were appointed to stumble. They were appointed to stumble. That's clearly what's being said here. But, Disobeying the word, how does that relate? One school of thought is that they made the decision to disobey, and God has determined that all who disobey will stumble. And so it separates, stumble is sort of a consequence, and obeying is sort of that choice or that activity. 
Does that make sense? And so it's saying, as they disobeyed, then God has appointed that all who have disobeyed will stumble. He appointed their consequences. That, that's where you land on it, or that's where people land on it. I don't think that's a heretical view by any means. There's probably ways to support that. However, the natural grammar of it is they stumble disobeying the word. Disobeying the word is a participle that describes stumble. So stumble and disobeying the word are the same thing. It's not the consequence of one for the other. Therefore, as they were destined to do or as they were appointed would mean that God is sovereign and his sovereign plan, their stumbling, that is disobeying the word, was part of God's appointed plan. And so the mystery that we see here is not if God is sovereign in people's disobedience and the consequence of that disobedience, but how God is sovereign in that. And at that point, you only push so far into the mystery before you're warned not to push too far into the mystery and trying to know the mind of God and what stands behind what we understand in Scripture. So we don't push too far back, and where you land theologically will tend to be how you sort of understand it. But we do know a few things, and from that we can draw a couple conclusions. So we know that God does not sin. He is not the author of sin, and he, your sin cannot be blamed on God. All right? So we know that to be true. We know that man's choices are very real, and he is very responsible for each of those choices made. We know that to be true. What we also need to understand is that we, 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 there's an idea of fairness that, that we sometimes put over top of the text that is not the right idea of fairness. Because for God, the opposite of justice is not injustice. The opposite of justice is mercy. It's not that some of us are getting justice and some of us are getting injustice. Some of us are getting justice and some of us are receiving mercy. And that is the just reward that we all deserve is punishment, is sin. There is nobody out there who sees God, is tasted God, and hungering after him, but God is, you know, kicking him away and not letting him approach. That's a scenario that does not exist Yet God does not cease to be sovereign, both in his justice of punishing those who reject him and in his mercy, dispensing mercy upon those whom he wills. And there's lots and lots and lots of scripture that, that clearly build that up. And we'll let Adam decide if he wants to go more into that or not. But So it's not if, but how exactly God is sovereign. From this text, we do know this. That it is meant to be a comfort to us. That God's plan will not be thwarted. It is not thwarted by unbelief. We believe in a, a particular redemption. That is that the cross of Christ accomplished everything it was supposed to accomplish. It didn't just vaguely make men savable. It accomplished the salvation of all those whose God's grace was going to fall upon.
So we see that the unbelief of man doesn't frustrate, doesn't thwart God's plan. It doesn't mess up the cornerstones. If the cornerstone is here and there's stones that are supposed to be fitting, but they just don't. No. The church will be built. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Unbelief does not thwart God's plan. The one who rejects the stone will never be able to boast over God that he frustrated God's ultimate design for his temple. Even unbelievers fulfill God's appointments. He cannot be defeated. He triumphs even in his own rejection. And I think that's why all of this is quoted from the Old Testament. That This isn't just you know now sort of some people aren't believing Jesus, so we're coming up with a new story about those who rejected him. It's been prophesied again and again and again. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's part of God's plan. It's quoted, it says in Psalm 118, I don't know if you noticed it in Matthew 21, but the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You see what it says afterwards? This is the Lord's doing, all of that. And it is marvelous in his eyes. It's something to be celebrated. It's something to be worshipped around. God gives justice. God gives mercy. And God gives grace. He uses the free proclamation of the gospel to all men as a means to draw his own unto him. We lean into God's sovereignty and celebrate it. We don't have to push too far into the mind of God to know exactly how it all works. And yet we know God's plan cannot be thwarted, even in unbelief. I'm going long, so I'll just touch in a, a couple minutes here. Now to those who are coming after, to those who are chosen, to those who are believing. It says here in verse... Uh, five, we'll back up. It says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We are being fit together as a spiritual house with Christ as the cornerstone, the firstborn, the preeminent. We are being built together. The one emphasis I'll make of that is that the Christian life is a life where we are being knit together. There is no just, you know, vagabond Christian who walks the journey on his own and is not part of the fabric of the church, of the temple. It doesn't exist. We are saved into community. You're not built upon the Redeemer without being called into the redeemed. That idea of brotherly love that we are called to and what that looks like. You're, the Christian life is the life of a community. It is life together. And we are fit together with Christ as preeminent, called to unity, called to the many things that that would call us to. It goes on to say then, <clears throat> to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It, the priesthood idea is going to come up again, so I won't develop that too much right now. Except to say, a holy priesthood to offer acceptable sacrifices. That is that we each come and we all have access to God to offer confession and prayer and praise. And we are called to do it. You don't come so that your pastor can be like, okay, just a minute. Let me offer praise to God and then I'll be back and tell you how it went. No, you stand up and you confess and you praise. 
What is the acceptable offering unto God? The New Testament, it speaks in different ways. One, it's our lives as a living sacrifice. The other way is prayer and song and praises. That we come hungering and thirsting after God together. We are called to come together, Jesus Christ in our midst, and exalt and praise and worship God in prayer, in singing, in fellowship, in the scripture, in the word. We praise our God together. And then our lives as a living sacrifice, acceptable worship unto God. Each of us are called together to do that. Not me just on your behalf. We have roles within the church that God calls us to. We are all called to offer praise unto God. And here again, Jesus Christ is our chief cornerstone, serves as the example and the ultimate priest serves as the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. And build upon that then, we come as little priests offering praise and worship unto God. You know why it's acceptable unto God? Because of Jesus Christ. Because <laughs> we come on the chief cornerstone. He makes it acceptable unto Christ. Not your pastor, not how good you did during the week. It's because we are knit together in union with Christ that our worship becomes acceptable unto him. And finally, the last positive there. Verse 6, for it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It flips the whole paradigm of elect exile on its head. Peter's speaking to a people who are dispersed. They've been driven out of their homes. They've lost their land. They've lost a lot of their way of making livelihood. What their status is, their acceptance now, they're outcasts. It's, it's shameful for them. And he's already told us he's preparing an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, unfading. He's keeping us for that. And now he's saying, whoever's built up on the stone, you will not be put to shame. But you will have honor. You will have glory. The trials that you are walking through aren't meant to shame you. They're meant to purify you so that you can share in the honor and the glory that belongs to the chief cornerstone. And we rejoice in that. Let's pray together to close. Lord, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> we thank you that it is living and it is active. We praise you for Jesus Christ as our chief cornerstone. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of being little priests that can come to you. We have access to you through Jesus Christ. Our sacrifices are acceptable to you because of Jesus Christ in and through him. Yet it is our duty and it is our delight to come and to praise and to make much of you. We thank you for the community of saints. Lord, those joined here in this local church and Redeemer, Lord, I pray that we would love one another and we would, we would grow together for the church spread throughout the city, spread throughout the nations. Lord, that you would be knitting together those stones for your dwelling place. Lord, not just passive, stationary stones where you would dwell, but living and active and worshiping stones, Lord. Might we find our joy in the cornerstone and not in the acceptance of men. Lord, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.